Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Farmer Lee Jones of The Chef's Garden. Farmer Lee Jones is an in-demand speaker and expert on regenerative agriculture and has presented at national and international conferences and seminars, including at the Culinary Institute of America's Greystone Flavor Summit, the American Culinary Federation's National Convention, the Women's Chef and Restaurateurs National Conference, and more. He was honored to receive the James Beard Foundation's Award for Who's Who in Food and Beverage, making him one of the first farmers to receive this, this, not this award. Chef's Garden has also recently released the Chef's Garden Cookbook, A Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables. This is a conversation I've been really looking forward to ever since I received his, his beautiful cookbook and a box of overly delicious vegetables, which has continued to um, feed me and my family since they arrived. So I want to welcome Farmer Lee Jones to the deep dive. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Philip. Yeah, this is, um, like I said, this has been circled on my calendar for a while. And there's so much I want to get to, but I want to start with maybe a story that isn't as pleasant, but I think it is very informative, which is your journey in farming and really how you got your start. And I want to zero in on, again, that sort of tragic moment where you, um, your family lost your initial farm. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, this area is a, what they call a microclimate. And it's an area that's affected by something, some phenomenon of weather or geographic region. And of course, Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. And we're 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie. And because it's the shallowest, it's the warmest. And European settlers recognize this area as a great grape growing area. This, this area was huge in grapes even before Napa Valley. But European settlers came here at one point, the largest concentration of vegetable growers anywhere in the world was in this county, in Erie County in Huron, Ohio. And that's uh, 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie. But there's a ridge that runs along to the east. And it's some of the richest sandy loam in the world. It's just beautiful, beautiful vegetable production. Before roads and refrigeration developed to the point where there was outside competition, they had really kind of a captive audience. If you can visualize this amazing microclimate, and then an hour east of here, Cleveland, an hour west of here, Toledo, two hours south of here, Columbus, an hour and a half west, Detroit, three and a half hours, Pittsburgh to the east, four hours, Cincinnati. You have these large metropolitan areas with massive populations, and then this amazing growing region right in the middle of it. And it's hard for us to get our minds around the fact that, what are you talking about, roads and refrigeration? It hasn't really been that long ago in our history. You go back to the 30s and even the 40s, the roads and refrigeration had not developed to the point where there was a lot of outside competition. Outside competition was more successful in being able to produce in regions where the Carolinas or Georgia or Florida or Arizona, California, where they have a longer growing season 
where in Ohio it's a it's a reduced or the thought process was that it's a reduced growing season. But a lot of vegetable production here. My dad went to work for a very progressive vegetable grower that recognized that competition coming and had invested in things like hydrocooling and packaging and sizing and sorting and waxing and distribution. And my dad bought that farm from him. Mr. Nichols had no children that wanted to take the farm over. And my dad bought the farm from him and had some successful years. And we were growing high volume, large volumes of vegetables, high volume, low margin, shipping truckloads every place east of the Mississippi River. And we had had some successful years in there. It's hard to imagine the interest rates are historically low today. 2.8%, I believe you can borrow money to buy a house. In the late 70s, early 80s, they actually hit 22%. It's incredible to think of 22% interest. My dad got wrapped up in it, and they had a horrific hailstorm, and it wiped out all the crops, and they couldn't repay the loans. And I stood at 19 years old. I'm the oldest in the family of three with my mom and dad, with my brother and sister, with all of our neighbors, with all of our competitors, with everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned every piece of equipment, every tractor, my mother's car, and our house off. It was gone in one day, 25 years of their work. I've tried to describe how it felt on that day. And really, a, it's a pain that doesn't go away. You manage it. To, if you can think about, Philip, going back to your high school days and your high school sweetheart that you thought you were in love with. Of course, we didn't maybe even know what love was, but we thought we were in love. And you go home and you find out that uh, they're ditching you for your best friend. And uh, that's a killer, you know? And I mean, it just felt like your heart was getting cut out while you were standing there watching them. And and we started over. It's not a rags to riches story by any stretch of the imagination, not trying to paint that. But I think out of every devastation, there's an opportunity to be able to try and learn something from. It's not that devastation happens. It happens to every one of us. Every one of us has a story. Every one of us has some tragedy in our lives. And it's, what do you do with that? And you know, our dad was always our hero. And you just start over. But you try and take a look and say, where, where did we go wrong? And how could we do better? And this is our opportunity to rethink this thing. You know, if you follow the money, we always hear that. Who's making the money? the pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies. We always hear about the universities being financially strapped, right? So they go to the universities and say, we'd like to give you a grant to be able to do research to help the farmers. So they give them a grant for 10 million or 2 million or 20 million or 100 million, say, here's money to help do research to help the farmers. And by the way, this research needs to include our chemicals. So here we are, it's 2021. We're using genetically modified, and I say we, society, we are not. We don't believe in the use of them. But we were using chemical. We were using genetically modified back in the day. We were following the way the university was teaching us. Look, the reality is, is that farmers in America are very efficient. Efficient. We produce food as it relates to our income. We produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income. Yet we have the highest health care in the world. Kind of a disparaging contrasts. So, you know, when we lost the farm, we started looking back at agricultural books that were 100 years old or 150 years old or 200 years old. And what's crazy is, is that in 1930, the nutritional levels and the nutritional density levels in food 
was 50% higher in 1930 than it is today. And we're going down. It's not only 50% down, but it's going down at an increasing rate. So you got the nutritional levels from 1930 to 2020 down 50%, going down at an increasing rate. While on that same period of time, a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, and allergies. Now, Philip, I wouldn't bet the farm on it, but I'd be willing to bet that every one of these listeners today has somebody in their immediate family or circle of friends that doesn't suffer from one or more of those diseases. It's not sustainable. So, you know, by kind of taking a look at this and saying, look, this is our chance to get off of the, the treadmill. Kind of felt like a gerbil on that treadmill. You just kept spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. And so you start looking back at what they were doing. If you were to come to our farm today, you would see kind of just merging. We've, Of course, we've heard people say it was the, we, we're like the Willy Wonka of the vegetable world. But in some cases, people see old world. And my dad had a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. So you see tractors that are 50 or 60 years old that are small because they're lighter in compaction and they don't compact the soil down and create a situation where the plants can't breathe. Um, so you see old school sort of merging with high tech and trying to take advantage of some of the technology that we've got available today, but yet going back. So it's this merging of two worlds. I wanted to jump on that for a minute because that's, it's funny. We got there. We got there sooner than I thought, but it's great that you bring that up because one of the things that really jumped out to me was this reclamation of knowledge, reclamation of equipment. Oftentimes when we think about innovation, we're always thinking about the new shiny thing, the technology piece. And in my work, I've often argued that to understand our future, we have to look back. And and it seems that when I read that piece about you, about you and, and the entire team, like reclaiming this this old equipment, reclaiming the knowledge that exists in these books. Like, how did you come to the intentional decision that it was going to be productive to go back to the things that we used to do and and make that that marriage between new and old really work? Well, probably a lot of things entered into it, but, you know, I guess the truth is, is we had a woman direct us in the right direction. And usually if you're smart enough to shut up and listen to a good woman, why they'll send most of us in the proper direction. So we met a woman, her name was Iris Balin. She was a chef. She had trained in Europe and she was looking for products grown without chemical products grown for the flavor. Everything in the United States was all about how we could do genetic selection, hybridization to create products with the highest yield, the most tons per acre. And here is this lady saying, look, I was in Europe. I experienced products that tasted good. And the vegetables today don't taste good because we're growing for the tons per acre rather than for the flavor per mouthful. And it really resonated mostly with my dad because what Iris was looking for had existed in America. But we had lost our way. And it really kind of, in a lot of ways, goes back to World War II when, and, and I, I mean this to, to say this, mom, you know, back in the day, 
was tasked with staying at home and feeding the family. Now, that, I know that's a generalization, and I'm not trying to make a chauvinistic comment, but the reality was a big percentage of the United States, dad was at work and mom was at home working every bit as hard, if not harder than dad at work, but tending to the family and household chores, and the families ate together, and we had a connection with where our food was coming from. When the war approached and we were tasked with bringing everybody to the moms were tasked with welding and building submarines and machine guns and army tanks. It was all hands on deck. And so we recognized after the war that, gee, we could be a two-income household. And so mom and dad were now working and developing the careers. And so we allowed for, I guess, a, a crack in things because then we had you. Do you remember, Philip, do you remember the frozen TV dinners? Absolutely. Swanson's. <laughs> and the hungry man, the hungry man dinner, right? Yeah, well, I mean, my mother thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread, and they were garbage, but they were convenient. <laughs> yeah, and because mom and dad were both working out of the house, it was great because she could pull them out of the freezer, put them in the oven. We could sit in front of a TV and eat this. We thought it was cool too, but they were terrible. The frozen Salisbury steaks and the frozen carrots and peas. I mean, and the instant mashed potatoes. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't leave out those mashed potatoes. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> you know, we had a disconnect with where our food was coming from. And it became about frozen food and convenience. And so we started losing our way. And now here's Iris that's saying, you know, in, in Europe, you go over and you pick your fresh vegetables and your meat or your fish or your chicken out and your bread every day. And you go back. And what she was describing to us and saying, look, grow without chemical, grow for the flavor. It resonated most with dad being a generation older and it really resonated with him because it felt right. It never felt right. You know, if you go back to my grandfather's generation, we always had a saying that the best fertilizer on the soil was that on the bottom of your shoe. And that meant you had an intimacy with the land. The farmers a hundred years ago could walk on the land and see the color was off on, a, on the, the wheat or the clover or the alfalfa and know that it was missing something and they can adjust it. They were, I mean, it's incredible. We've, we, and we lost part of that. Today, we take the soils and we send them and get a lab analysis to tell us what the mineral uh, levels are and tell us what we're deficient in. And then we tweak that. So we use that technology, but we lost that innate just ability to be able to walk the land and to be able to see what it needed and sense it because it was done year after year after year. And we lost that. So, you know, it's taking us time to kind of use technology to be able to understand it's basically like if you were to go and have blood work drawn and you find that you're high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, low in calcium, uh, basically a readout on all the minerals. And what's really cool is that based on that deficiency, you know how we jokingly talk about, I need some vitamin D, so I'm going to go out and collect some sunshine. Yeah. Go sit in the sun or, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so much more truth to that than people even understand. If you think about your body as being able to harvest vitamin D. So based on the deficiencies in the soil, different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So based on the deficiency, it may be alfalfa, buckwheat, clover, rye, sedan grass. We have a 15 species planting that will plant half of our acreage in any one year 
is committed to harvesting the sun's energy. It's not to plant something in the field to generate a dollar today. It's harvesting the sun's energy. And then when we plant the turnip or the bean or the carrot or the radish or the spinach or whatever it is we want to grow to consume the next year, it picks that back up. And then it builds our immune system to defend against those diseases in the first place. And so it's really, it's about getting that soil in balance. When you use a genetically modified seed, it's designed so that it's planted and sprayed at the same time. So it eliminates times over the field, makes it more efficient. But it kills all the biology in the soil. But when we feed that soil through plant-based, you're feeding the biology. There's more life below the Earth's surface than there is above, unless we're using a genetically modified seed and then using the chemical to kill it. That's why we have all the algal problems, the algal bloom problems in the Great Lakes, because these these synthetic fertilizers don't have the ability to break down because the biology isn't alive in the soil to break it down. So then it runs off and now it's feeding, it breaks down out in the lake and now it's growing amazing algal bloom that's causing all kinds of trouble. Here in Toledo, just a couple of years ago, they had to shut off the water source in fresh water. And 80% of the world's population is in the Great Lakes. And we had to shut that down because of the algal bloom. So it's pretty amazing. We're seeing numbers as high as 300 to 500 times higher than the USDA average by rebuilding those soils naturally rather than chemically. It's really exciting. We can repair the earth. We can rebuild it if we have, but we have to be considerate of the environment. Healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. I mean, everything you're saying, one, I it's obvious the passion it's obvious the expertise, and it's also obvious the love that is built into like everything that is that is done in order to produce the vegetables. And what really strikes me is that you, as you explain this, you see the cycle is there, right? That the the soil is is super critical to the process. It's a rejuvenation process. It's an idea of not just extracting, but sustaining. And I'm curious, like, how did something that is so, so much common sense become so muddled and lost in our relationship to farming, you know? And the reason why I'm so intrigued by this, among many others, is, you know, I'm a city kid. Right. Like I grew up in New York. I don't know anything about farming, you know, despite aspirations to have a farm one day, which I'll kind of leave to the side. But, you know, I don't technically know much about it. And I have very strong recollections of like loving Little House on the Prairie when I was a kid and, you know, kind of growing up with the Charles Ingalls and Ingalls family struggles and all that kind of stuff, which kind of romanticized this idea of of farming. But outside of that, it seems like farming is something that is almost branded as nostalgic in beer commercials and all that kind of stuff and car commercials rather than something that's real and lived experience by people like yourself and many others. Like, why do you think that is? And how do we start to tell a different story about how vital farming is to our ability to survive? That's a big question. It's our personal belief that there's a direct spiritual connection, a holistic connection to this. Uh, you can go back to biblical times and find that they harvested fruit for six years 
and on the seventh year, they let the fruit fall to the ground. It was a composting. They were rebuilding. It's like a relationship. We tend to think, many of us in a garden, harvest, 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 harvest. You know, if it's a relationship where you're only taking from that relationship and you're not giving anything back to it, it's not sustainable. It's got to be a give and take. And there's such a symbiotic relationship through life. I mean, I see so many parallels with farming and life, just everyday life. And it's, there's an intimacy living on the farm and seeing those cycles. It's almost like life accelerated. We, if we're lucky, we get 70, 80 years on this earth. We kind of see a life cycle in a year. And the beautiful part is, is that we can pause and evaluate and see, what are we doing? And I think that this losing of the farm was devastating in many ways, but it was, it was our sign that said, hey, you dummies, don't you see what you're doing? And for some of us, it takes a bigger stick than others. And it, it was a pretty good stick. And it gave us that pause to kind of evaluate the direction. It never felt exactly right using the chemical, using synthetic fertilizer, seeing the more and more fertilizer having to be used to be able to produce product and diseases that were coming in. And then it's just like Western culture of medicine, Philip. We're always putting a Band-Aid on the situation. I know I would be willing to bet you again, not the farm. I'll bet you a beer. You've been to the, as in your adult life, you've had a strep throat. And it's bugged you to the point it was bothersome enough that you finally went to the doctor. And what did he do? Or she? Antibiotics. <laughs> Antibiotics. Moxicillin, penicillin, viacillin. We're putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Where Eastern culture is, get the body in balance to defend against the strep throat in the first place and let your body heal itself. So I, I just think that every year we kind of get a chance to really do a deep dive and, and sort of analyze what's the end goal. I mean, it's about trying to be able to help feed people healthy food and to be able to help society at the end of the day. And if we can't do that, then what's our legacy? It's not about money. It never has been. If it was about money, we'd have quit a long time ago. You know, it's it's about trying to do something that helps. And it's just, it's in your blood. I can't imagine doing anything else. So I don't know if that answers the question. It's certainly not a answer to the problem. It's not a solution to the problem. Absolutely. I mean, but I think it, the values that you're sharing with us and that are evident in the product, they're evident in the book are really things that we should be extrapolating beyond farming. And, you know, when, when I was reading it, that's what I kept thinking about was like, these are the same conversations I have with corporations regardless of what they're doing, right? Like when you when you talk about being more thoughtful and mindful as to your process, what really struck me is that when quote unquote smaller is when things got demonstrably better. You know, when we're kind of taught bigger is better, we have to scale, we have to get bigger, who's going to be your audience? Like it doesn't matter what it is. It could be heirloom tomatoes, or it could be TikTok, right? Everything is about getting bigger and better. And it seems that you all went opposite way and it worked. Like, tell me about 
like how did it feel to make that choice? And maybe it wasn't all choice, but to go down that road and start to do the things that really conventional wisdom said wouldn't have worked. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is better is better before bigger is better. But when Iris came to us and said that she wanted products grown for flavor rather than tons per acre, and she was looking, the very first thing that she was asking for was a zucchini with a bloom. Now, I'm talking about a zucchini that's the size of your pinky, three inches long-ish, with a big, beautiful orange bloom on the end of it. Now, my dad had grown zucchini for 50 years, and they were seven and a half to eight inches long, two and a half inches in diameter. You put 20 pounds in a carton, and we ship thousands of these things every place east of the Mississippi River by the truckload. And here's this lady in a chef jacket, which we knew nothing about the culinary world, saying she wanted to pick a zucchini this long. And we kind of came home, and when we started back over, we started back at farmer's markets, and we would share what we called war stories from the day of dealing with the public. I'm saying that somewhat jokingly, but, you know, and I said, yeah, there was this lady in a chef jacket. She wanted us to pick a zucchini of three inches long, he said. She won't even remember the conversation next week. The best thing you could do is just forget about it. And she didn't forget about it. And I finally picked him and she just went crazy over these zucchini blooms. Finally got dad's attention. I said, dad, she was willing to pay 50 cents a piece for these things. Now, this was back in the early 80s. And and that he reared back in his chair and it kind of got his attention. And he said, well, well, then just how many of them does she want? And she came out. We had a conversation and my dad picked up something that she said, and he said, how many other farmers have you been to to try and get them to do this? And she sheepishly admitted that it was 15 or 20 other farmers, and they all said no. You know, you got to keep in mind, this was the Earl Butts days. Earl Butts was the Secretary of Agriculture. His claim to fame, the statement that goes down in infamy is, get big or get out. And that's what he told the American farmers. And here was this lady saying, grow without chemical, grow for the flavor, grow these little ones. There's no demand. No farmers would do it. And when she said that none of them would do it, he said, we're in. And that was the beginning. And then, because it, it really resonated, we started looking back to those old agricultural books, looking for how we could build flavor. The three most important things over the last 38 years from chefs we've heard was Flavor was most important. Flavor was second most important. And flavor was third most important. But we had a hypothesis that as we were working to build flavor naturally rather than chemically, that we were probably bringing those nutrient levels along with it. Because it's really about balance. It's about balance in soil. It's about balance in life. And, you know, and so that really, we invested in a lab. It was just in a semi-trailer at first. You know, we in later years, the last three or four years, we invested in a, a bigger lab with more equipment, and we have people testing nutrient, nutrient densities, oxide levels, testing the soils to find out what those mineral levels are to really get a better understanding of how we can affect things naturally. And, you know, by using these cover crops, it's been huge. I like that you're kind of heading me into sort of the the work that's being done, the investment in the technology, the investment in the science, because oftentimes when we think about farming, and I'm talking about just general people, right? Farming is something that is perceived as being unsophisticated, you know, and 
I read a, a book uh, a while ago called The Agrarian Handbook, and it's like a collection of essays from different authors. And, you know, they started talking about that spiritual connection to the land that you described. And each author kind of highlights a different piece of the, or essayist describes a different piece of the puzzle. But as I started like thinking more about an agrarian lifestyle and farming in general, I realized that, you know, this is actually like highly technological work in the sense that like we're thinking about technology as like one set of things. It's computers and cell phones and Wi-Fi and not thinking about technology or innovation in terms of working with our hands, working with soil. And it's just as highly skilled. Like the, the way you're describing understanding the nutrients in the soil and the balances and the rejuvenation and to be able to keep doing this over and over and over. I'm like, this is more technical than Tesla, <laughs> for example, which is a combustion engine to some, and I'm simplifying it, but you get what I'm saying. So again, like, did you, do you find that that's something that people don't realize when you're telling them about how you're growing for flavor, that this actually involves like a lot of real deep knowledge? No, I no, don't that's not ever really been the goal. I mean, you know, there was a, there used to be a saying that, well, if you can't make it in the real world, at least you can go back and work on the farm. Um, it was never looked at as, it was looked at as a pretty lowly position. And that's, you know, to launch off and derail us, but I mean, that's why overalls, white shirt, and red bow tie, to, regardless of what occupation we choose, we can hold it with dignity and do the best that we can. But, um, you know, it, the goal isn't to, try and convince somebody how complicated this is. I think that it becomes an educational role of, of letting people, people are more savvy, more interested, more tuned in, more conscientious and concerned about where their food is coming from than ever before. We're recognizing, we get that we have a 3000% increase in these diseases and that it's not sustainable. And it becomes up to us to kind of turn this ship around. So, we're not out there trying to convince people that we know a lot of stuff about science or anything. It's um, how can we all collectively work together and be able to share and create an understanding that we can rebuild the soil, that we can create healthy vegetables again, and that it should be a concern to you. Does it cost us more money to grow in this way? Sure. I mean, I look at some of the costs on some of these pharmaceuticals, what it costs per pill. You know, I'd rather pay a little bit more for a healthy grown vegetable and take care of my family than I would finding some drug to patch you up. So I think it's it's more we maybe try and inform people on the differences. And we're still learning, too. The more we dig into this, the more we know that we have more to understand. You know, it used to be a saying on the farm that, uh, you know, the goal of a farmer was to leave his land in better condition for future generations than when he or she had it. And that is noble and it's still one of our goals. But the reality is, is that people are really a critical part of this. If we can't create a situation where we can create a profit margin so that we can pay team members, we like to call them team members rather than employees, 
a wage, a competitive wage. And, and I'm talking about everybody from the person that harvests this to the person that helps market it or sells it. Everybody that if we can't pay them a competitive wage so that they can send their children to the schools of their choice, to have an automobile of their choice, to have a home of their choice and to be able to live the American dream, then what's the point of this? This isn't sustainable either. We're seeing that in America, throughout America, because we can't pay people enough. And so if we can't charge enough to be able to share that earnings back with our team, then what's the point? So we think that people are really a critical part of what our goals are to be able to leave for the future at a situation on our farm that people want. If, if we can't pay them a competitive wage, the good people are going to go someplace else and work. So this thing is deep. It's it, you got to look at it's healthy soil, it's healthy vegetables, it's healthy people, healthy environment. The environment has to be factored in. But first and foremost, it's got to be the people, the people, the environment, the soil. It all kind of weaves together. It's interconnected. And it's a delicate balancing act for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, sustainability is a word that I think we've woven it in a little bit in this conversation, but I want it because it's, it's a word and ideology that is, it's used in so many different ways that it's weird in a way that the more it's used, the more it sometimes means less and less, right? Because everybody can attach their own kind of spin or part part to it. And you talk about sustainability in a very specific way, and you alluded to it just now in a, a total connectivity to your process. And I want to give you an opportunity to, to maybe speak more specifically about how sustainability is woven into everything that you do in a, in a very real way. Like we're not talking theoretical sustainability here. Well, we are convinced the sustainability isn't worth a shit. It's a buzzword. I agree. Everybody's weaving it in. It's one of those feel goods that marketing companies are using to try and resonate with people. What does sustain mean? It means to hang on. It means that you're you're, you're getting by. It just barely. You're sustaining yourself. You're keeping going. We've kind of gone past that and said sustainability isn't enough. It's got to be regenerative. We've got to be able to rebuild the soil, rebuild the environment created a situation where people are being paid a wage and an environment that's a good working environment that's not only healthy and safe, but it's exciting and fun and captivating. And they want to learn and they want to stay on the farm and be able to build and grow it and grow into the future rather than sustain. I don't want to just hang on. I want the next generations. And I'm not talking about blood family. I'm talking about our family. On the farm, there's 156 full-time people here. There's three or four of us in our family, but we're, the family's not going to be next. It's going to be this team and, and, and our farm and every other farm. How do we create an environment where people want, we're losing farmers and the average age of a farmer is over 60 years old. Who's next and who wants to come here when you can go and get a job and, and make some pretty decent money with pretty good benefits? And so we got to compare this to Google. Or some of these other big companies where that's the role, that's the model that we want to follow for. Some of these places don't even clock in. They it's get the job done. So kind of having an open mind to looking at ways that we can create an environment that are regenerative. People want to come and do this. I'm I'm rambling on, Philip. No, not at all. This is these are the, the real things because when you when you talk about 
these disparities in, in age, you know, when you talk about demographic disparities, you know, the, you know, economic I, I, disparities. Yeah. There's a lot going on that is influences whether or not people view this as something that is alive and viable. When I think about the agricultural experience of, of African-Americans, I believe there was a number at the turn of the century, there was 30 or 40 percent of farmers were African-American. Now it's almost single digits. Yeah, right. You know, so when I when I hear you talk about this side of connectivity, it's a much bigger thing. It is. You know, about how do we bring people of all types, you know, claiming knowledge, you know, we're, we're having this interview on Indigenous Day and, you know, so much of this land, understanding the land we can find that same appreciation that you've described in many of their practices and, and customs for centuries, you know, if, if not longer. So, you know, as I start to like think about how to pull this all together, what does that future that you kind of highlighted really tangibly look like? If we're, let's say we're putting sustainability aside and we're thinking about really growing the future of all of this, like what what does that look like for you and your team? And and it could be aspirational. Well, I mean, it would be regenerative. Where that's kind of our new buzzword, rather than sustainability, it's regenerative agriculture, where we can leave the land, we can build that land, and that's what's hopeful, is is that we can rebuild the soils that have been damaged for many years. We can create a, a healthy work environment where it's a positive, not so backbreaking that people don't want to do that where so you know it it's environment it's income levels it's something that's looked at and respected if we don't respect it nobody will i think that that's important so you know we're not doing that because we want to say hey look at us we're farmers but i think that we got to be able to do something that gives back to society to be able to make a difference and i think that there's times when we tend to think that it's doom and gloom and all is lost. But I think because we could, you know, tie that back to every year, there's another cycle and we get a do over and we get a chance to try and fix some things that we know we didn't get right. We make our best laid plan and hope they go right. And a lot of times they, we miss the mark and sometimes they don't go as well as planned, but you regroup and you make the plan again and you get another shot and you keep tweaking. There's hope. And I think that farmers are probably the most optimistic people in the world because you start over every year with the hope that maybe it can get a little better. But, you know, my dad had a saying that we have to continue to make mistakes at a faster rate than the competition. He also said we make mistakes really well. The third part of that is you need to learn from the mistakes. And so each year you get a chance to adjust that and tweak and keep moving. Aspirationally, we can grow product to, it's unconscionable to think of 40% food waste in America and we have people that are hungry in, in America. Now, it's much more of a global issue, but just even within our own country to think that we have 40% food waste and we have people that are going hungry. We ought to be smart enough to be able to figure out how to feed our, our people, all of them. We have these deserts, food deserts. You're in an inner city and you you can't even find something healthy to eat. You go to a convenience store, there's nothing in there. You know, we have a saying, you know, 
There is no such thing as junk food. It's either junk or it's food. And in most of those places where you can go to get something to eat, it's just junk. And there isn't anything healthy about it. But again, I don't want to be negative and I don't want to be the doom and gloom. There's hope and we can and we're smart enough collectively as a group of human beings in society to be able to work on it. And the aspiration is, is that we work towards that. Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 there's so much promise and there's there's so much joy. And it's like I said, it's it's evident in in everything that you're seeing around you. But I I think that it's not really doom and gloom. I think it's reality, right? And to a certain extent, joy is that is that thing, which I think is different from like happiness, right? Like happiness could be just kind of giddy and it's fleeting, but joy comes with hard work, right? Like you can still find joy in tough moments, you know, those that when you describe you know, you, you have to do a do-over every, every cycle, you get another chance. Right. But there's still joy in that, in that process. There's hope, and, there's hope you know? Yeah. There's hope. I guess, I guess that's why they say hope springs eternal. That's right? Right, like, exactly right. Yeah. I don't use that one often, but I guess there's a reason why it exists. Absolutely. And it, and it, and it does really, really fit in here. Um, I want to get to, to one more before we get to the final seg two segments of the show which is I kept coming back to this notion as I as I read through your stuff and that there is such a beauty in what you're doing being small in a general sense. And when I say small, I'm comparing to conglomerate industrial farming. I love small. Small's okay. Yeah. It's small, but also it still seems expansive in the imagination. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think of like all the corporate farming as being like maybe big in size, but small in their imagination. And I see what you're doing is quite the opposite. Do you feel a, a comfort in that being small, but intentional? Yeah, absolutely. It's a goal. Not necessarily ever to be big, but it's just it's I think that there are lessons to be learned. I think that the thing that popped into my head was, I don't know, one of the movies that I, the old, I like the old movies, but there's one called the Hoosiers and these bunch of small town kids, ragtag bunch of kids that somehow come together and they work on a unified vision. Somehow they make it to state pretty intimidated to get in this great big stadium. I visualize it as, the Ohio State Stadium or someplace, and it's huge. These kids are, like, shaking in their boots. The guy gets out his tape measure, has one of the guys put on his shoulders and put the end of the tape measure on the end of the hoop, measure it down to the floor. Guess what? It was 10 foot. Then they measured the length from the foul line to the hoop, the same length as their little school back home where they could seat 400 people in it. And this thing held 40,000. So I don't know whether that's a good analogy. Uh, I guess wherever you are, whether it's small ball or small town, or you can do it right or try to achieve that. And maybe you can set an example. You know, a stone, you throw a stone in a pond, and it's one stone, but it creates a ripple. And do our best to make a ripple and try and do the right things and, work hard at it and have some fun and accept our tragedies and our failures and 
try and keep learning from them and keep going. That life's a journey. And here we are. It absolutely is. And um, I can attest to the the care and the love that comes from the vegetables you grow. Like I said, when, you know, your your team was kind enough to, to send me a, a box along with the book, the cookbook, the chef's garden. And, you know, I remember they sent the note and they were like, oh, we're going to send you some vegetables. And I was like, okay. Right. Like, you know, not, not knowing at all what that meant or what it would look like or anything like that. I was like, okay, that might've been a typo, but yeah. I'll, t- yeah. I'll take your word for it. Right. <laughs> and when, when the box arrived, I, I got to say it was absolutely beautiful. The um, vegetables were truly, and I'm, and I'm not just saying that they were truly delicious. Like you can taste the difference immediately. And, you know, I love vegetables, but I'm not the type to like just pop tomatoes in my mouth and stuff like that. But that's what we were doing. Like it was like literally just eating. I don't know how many of them made it out out of the container into a meal that we just kind of literally ate them right out of the out of the box. So I can attest to the joy, the love, the taste and and everything. So the journey that you're on is definitely working. So kudos to you and the entire team, 165 plus of you out there doing um doing noble work. <laughs> well, thank you. And, you know, I mean, 100% of our revenue stream was direct to restaurants up until March 2020. We were shipping as far as the Mandarin Oriental, Hong Kong, uh, Disney, Las Vegas, New York, Chicago, direct from the farm to those restaurants. And those restaurants just shut down when COVID hit. And it was certainly a scary moment for us because we wanted to keep our team employed, safe, fed, and what could we do to help in a crisis? And so we pivoted to a nationwide home delivery. And so folks can actually go to farmerjonesfarm.com and be able to order a box delivered from the back door of our farm to the front porch of their condo or their apartment or their home anywhere in the United States. And we all have people in our world that we buy a gift at holiday season. And what do you get them? Because they already got two of everything. You get them a subscription <laughs> to a box of vegetables that comes once a month. And so it was, again, it was just, that was another step for us to see how, how could we, it was devastation. It was really scary. And it was a pivot move to be able to try and be able to help in a bigger way to be able to help society. And now it's a, it's a thing. And we, we want to propel that, go more. If any of the listeners want to follow what we're doing or share what they're doing, or you want to make a dish, uh, Farmer Lee Jones on Instagram, certainly. But, you know, you talked about popping those tomatoes out of the mouth. One of the things that we found is, and I'll leave folks with these two tips, eat it raw and eat the rainbow. And what I mean by that is when you cook something, you lose 50% or more of nutritional value. When you overcook it, you lose even more. I look back at my grandmother's wonderful meals. They were so good, but she cooked them all day. My guess is there was nothing nutritionally sound about them by the time we ate them. And anytime you can eat it raw, you get 50% more of the nutritional value. And if you can get color in to your diet, eat the rainbow of colors. We have orange carrots, yellow carrots, red carrots, white carrots, and multitude of beets and varieties of things. Get color into your diet and when you can eat it raw it's just those two things can really be healthy for you 
Those are awesome tips. I, I love that. And you're you're absolutely right. I mean, they were that multitude of colors. It's it's so explosive. It was just a, a real a real delight to to pop open that box. So we're we're in we're in a really good place, and it's a perfect season to have these kind of conversations. You know, I, I want to get to our final two segments, which are off the dome and the drop. So, like I said, the off the dome are just a couple quick fire, rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to your mind is going to be the correct answer. Now, I know that you're not going to tell me what your favorite vegetable is. I've already been prepped for that, but I'm going to ask you in and around that question, okay, <laughs> to try to maybe suss out a few answers. So this is the first question. Which vegetable do you consider to have the most versatility to be used by people out there? Your most versatile vegetable. I'm always seasonally sensitive, but right now my answer is kale. Okay. So in the fall season, kale is your most versatile vegetable. And, and we're picking them, you're picking at a different stage of the plant's growth. We tend to think of it grown to big, tall leaves where you've got to cook it down because it's leathery and tough. We pick those inner leaves of the plant and they're tender, so tender you can put them right in your salad. They're in the cruciferous family and they add so many nutrients and crunch and texture to a salad. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Okay. This is my second vegetable related question. Which vegetable, if it were a person, has the most attitude? That's supposed to be quick, right? Colorado. Yeah. Kohlrabi. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm not even familiar with what that is. It's the most underrated vegetable in America. All of the European listeners or ancestors from Europe are going to know what the kohlrabi is. It's spelled K-O-H-L dash R-A-B-I. It looks like a turnip. It grows above the ground, not below. And it's got these majestic leaves that come out. The leaves are edible. I have had Wolfgang Puck on my farm, and he'll reach down out of the field and grab one and eat it like an apple. A little bit like a cucumber, <laughs> a little bit like a potato. It's crunchy. It can be put in a salad. It can be steam cooked. It is absolutely fabulous. And it's so underrated, but it, you can get them in a purple. You can get them in a green, and they're incredible. Okay. So that's our that's our attitudinal vegetable. And my final vegetable off the dome question is, if vegetables, by and large, could talk, what do you think they would say to us? Well, it, that's easy for me. If you think about a Brussels sprout plant, I don't know if you've ever seen one grow. It takes about eight, nine, ten months for it to grow. They get to be three and a half, four feet tall. It's one of the most majestic and beautiful plants that you can ever imagine. And it has these nice, beautiful canopy of leaves that come around to be able to provide to keep the Brussels sprout from being sunburned. It's just nature's way. It's what that leaf purpose is. And then off this long stalk, all we do is pick these little bitty Brussels sprouts. In Europe, in the European countries, over their life existence, they've had to learn to use every part of an animal for survival at some point. The gelatin between the hooves, the oxtail, the eyeballs, the brains, every part of that animal was used and respected because they couldn't waste anything. Why can't we celebrate that? that Brussels sprout or a plant, all the nutrients, all the love, all the water, all the time that's gone in to grow this majestic plant. But we're conditioned to think just eat the Brussels sprout. Those leaves, I would be willing to bet you again, not the farm, but I would <laughs> bet you a, a, or any of your listeners, if you were blindfolded, you would not be able to tell the difference in a collard green and a Brussels sprout leaf. They're in the cruciferous family. That means cabbage, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, all under the umbrella of cruciferous, collard greens, 
You cannot tell the difference in a in a Brussels sprout leaf that accounts loaded with vitamins, and yet we throw those away and we just pick the Brussels sprout. Let's reduce the waste. Let's 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 find ways to use that entire plant by getting thinking outside of the basket, if you will, and eat the whole plant and celebrate the entire plant's life. Celebrate that plant's life in a way that you don't have any waste. That's awesome. That's awesome. Lessons lessons to, from the vegetables to us. And so I didn't ask your favorite vegetable, but I did ask three vegetable-related questions. So I kind of dodged it a little bit. And so we're going to get to the, the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop, like I said at the beginning, is just a recommendation. It could be anything at all that our listeners should be aware of. You've actually already given us quite a few little drops sprinkled throughout the, the interview. I have one. Hopefully you have at least one or two. doesn't really matter. Um, I can go first if you want me okay. to. Okay. All right. My drop this episode is actually a movie, um, which is called In the Mood for Love. It's a um, foreign film, came out around 2000. And um, the director is um, Wong Kar Wai, who's very renowned, has done many, many movies. But this film is one of my favorites. So if we're overly indulging in squid games and other more hyper-violent, though otherwise interesting things to watch, In the Mood for Love is a different type of thing to engage with. So that's my drop for this episode. To you, Farmer Lee Jones. And it's supposed to be a movie? Yep, it's a movie. Well, if you're ever in the mood to stay in your PJs and lounge on a rainy or a cold day, go back. I, I, can, I can tell that I'm really getting old because a lot of people don't know who Henry Fonda is. And then I say, well, maybe <laughs> you know who Jane Fonda is. Well, Jane Fonda's father was Henry Fonda. At 21 years old, he plays the main character in a great old Netflix movie, Black and White, uh, Grapes of Wrath. And it was a book that was inspirational and meaningful to me. It's where the outfit actually derived back to the Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. It's a book, but it's a movie. And I would just encourage anybody, if you want a, a short history of American life in the last hundred years, it's really a, it's a good one. It's, it's, it's about family and it's about life in general. It's a great, great, great book and movie. The Dust Bowl history of, of the United States is one that we should definitely more know and, and understand, particularly as we kind of face more kind of environmental challenges as these years go by. So history becomes new again. So that is a great drop. <laughs> um, this has been absolutely fantastic. This is a, I couldn't think of a, having this conversation on a Monday here in New York and couldn't think of a better way to start my week um, with you and, and kind of sharing in your work and in your joy. I really appreciate you being on the deep dive with me. It was truly an honor, Philip, and I would extend an invitation for you to bring your family out at some point. I will tell you that we do have indoor plumbing, so, <laughs> but I also will tell you we do have a three-day rule, and after three days, you're no longer a guest, and we will put you to work. So, <laughs> okay. but seriously, <laughs> if you ever want to make the trip out, it's uh, about a 10 hour trip by car. Not a bad drive. Come on out. and We would love to have you. Absolutely. I might be taking you up on that because you're going to further fuel my farm aspirations. So I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, this has been a wonderful conversation. And thanks again. Thank you, sir. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, 
thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.